Amen. Hey, that's right. We are once again on our topic of world religions, cults, and the occult. And I'm going to give you another round for it. We are on topic number four, and it rhymes with... Man, you guys are getting into it tonight. <laughs> but that's right. We're back in Hinduism. We've already seen what is Hinduism. Uh, we saw about uh, how they base their beliefs, their Vedas and all that stuff, the history and the chronology of Hinduism, uh, the evangelism efforts here in the West. Again, we're going to see some of the unfortunate payoff of their efforts with them. The terminology of Hinduism, and last time if you were here, we saw that once again, Hinduism is not, quote, the oldest religion on the planet. They're a spinoff, as we saw, like every other religion on the planet, from the Genesis 11 Tower of Babel incident, okay? Because again, the reason why I bring that up is to not just say, ha ha, we're older, but it's that mentality that people have. Well, this is older than Christianity, therefore Christianity is a spinoff from these older religions. That's not true, so I wanted to deal with that. Then we began to take a look at their belief systems with their so-called deities. Uh, they believe in a Brahmin, this universal force, and it could be just about anything you want. Uh, you could be Brahmin, the pew could be Brahmin, the carpet, you fleas, bugs, you name it, right? Uh, not at all like the God of the Bible. And then, of course, we saw the big issue that is in people's verbs today. They even make movies about it, and that's that issue of the avatars. And again, the, it's one thing to believe that, but they think that that's who Jesus was. He's no different than Buddha, Muhammad, you know, Confucius, uh, just another avatar to teach us the way. That's Hinduism 101. And most people don't even uh, realize that as well. And of course, how this avatar mentality we left off last time, if you recall, with uh, the world figure on the scene, the false prophet, very possibly, uh, duping people into appearing into the sky, the occult and new age is waiting for, who they think is a good guy. Uh, but you have to have this avatar mentality to fall for that lie. And Hinduism, once again, uh, is preparing the way for that. But we are in paragraph two. I know, hey, not just paragraph two, but two-thirds of the way down to paragraph two. Pause for reflection. And that's right, we are at the part where it says, Hindus do not have one set of scriptures. Now, again, that's the part. Don't even have the originals that we saw before that's recorded on bark and palm leaves. How many guys would say, if you're going to record your last will and testament, don't use bark and palm leaves? Okay, so unfortunately, even at the supposed Vedas and all that stuff, and their other so-called sacred writings, we don't even have the originals, not even anywhere close, and, but then they, they got multiple sources. Unlike you and I, we have one Bible, okay, and that's why you get a lot of, well, hey, if that's what you think, whatever, it's that mentality, come one, come all, okay, and again, that's prevailing even in the church today. But they do not have one set of scriptures, and that's what makes it so challenging, okay, because if you don't like that, well, I go over here. Well, what about the, well, over here? Well, it's just it's cat and mouse, okay? Most Hindus daily worship an image. Is your first blank there tonight. They worship an image. We're going to get into this pretty deep tonight because, again, this is another avenue, believe it or not, that they are evangelizing us here in the West to worship their images, okay? Uh, image of their chosen deity. Now, they don't just worship. Here's how they do it typically. With chants or mantras, where you get that uh, repetitious a phrase over and over again with giving them flowers or incense okay worship is primarily individualistic rather than congregational is your next blank there congregational as we saw before that was because of kind of a spin-off in the, the the priesthood system that they kind of rebelled against early on and said no we're all going to do it ourselves anybody can do this uh, things that nature, although in certain aspects they do, uh, still do have the priesthood, but they also have, as we're going to see again tonight, that guy you just got to have, that guru, okay? And have you guys noticed that as we're just going through this Hindu study, how many Hindu terms and terminology is already in our English language? I'm telling you, they've been doing this for about 100 years now, 
evangelizing the West, and we're just so inundated with it, we don't even think about it. We've already assimilated into it. And, uh, but let's continue on. But they said the worship of image, okay, is what's going on there. Now, we're going to talk about something that's very important to the Hindu worship of whatever deity, because, again, there's about 330 million. That's all. Who's counting? Okay. But their image, and what they, the term they use is uh, murtis or murtis, however you want to say that. And that's what we're going to talk about. Now, the deities, of course, they're split up into this male-female issue. We'll probably get into that more with the yin-yang and Buddhism and stuff next time. Okay. But again, they're gods and goddesses. Now, actually, if you think about that, that is a logical absurdity. God, by definition, even from a purely secular sense, secular philosophy, God, by definition, is the ultimate supreme being, right? That he's all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present, right? Self-existent. And he has to be self-existent because if he's dependent on somebody else for his existence, then he wouldn't be supreme. Well, the same thing. There can only, by definition of a supreme being, singular, could only be one by definition. Because if there's another one, then maybe they're more powerful. Maybe they know more than that other guy, right? And so actually this premise that there's more than one God is a logical absurdity. If there is a God by bare bones definition, there can only be one. Because you can't compete, otherwise you wouldn't be supreme but that's their belief is many gods and goddesses okay and uh they uh, their deities uh, are different again it could be personal like a personal deity as in with yoga we get dealt with that expl uh, explicitly uh to hundreds of them and literally to millions of de deities okay uh so take your pick okay now they're represented by various icons okay icons and their icons could be a statue Have you guys ever been to an oriental restaurant a lot of times, what do they have there? Sometimes right by the cash register. They got this really large guy who's been to the buffet way too many times. No, it's his Buddha. Okay, but what's, what's there with Buddha? Right? We laugh at, oh, look at that guy. Okay, but there's actual people have incense going. This is an act of worship. We may laugh at it, but I'm going to tell you, they're already tricking us into doing the same thing. We'll get to that tonight. Lord willing. Okay, but sometimes there's money. Have you noticed it? Coins and stuff. Good luck. You rub his belly. Apparently, for good luck, they used to believe all that. Again, we'll get into that, Lord willing, uh, in the next uh, chapter or Buddhism section. Okay, and, uh, But flowers, stuff like that, that is an actual form of worship. It's not just there for convenience. That's who they believe is going to help their business and things of that nature, uh, etc. But they have icons. It could be statues, but it could also be paintings. Okay, this is huge. If you go look on the internet or anywhere else you want to do and just type in Hindu deities, they're all over the place. Again, there's like 330 million of them, right? But even their major ones, and if you looked at them, they're not the most pleasant-looking things ever. They're kind of creepy-looking with snakes and <laughs> things and mm, heads. And, mm. Okay, if you're going to make something up, at least somebody you want to take out to lunch or something. But I don't know. They're, they're going to make you lunch. I don't know. But anyway, but, but that's serious stuff, paintings, okay? Because what we're going to see tonight is in that worship of the paintings, that's how you commune with the deity. Okay, but painting, sculptures, and that stuff. But this is their murtis, okay, is what's going on there, okay? Uh, deities in uh, Hinduism are uh, diverse, okay? In their worship, again, it's come one, come all, right? It's not at all like you and I, the one and only God, the only one way through, uh, to get to the Father is through Jesus Christ, one way of salvation, uh-uh, okay? And again, it's not just there's a multitude of them, 330 million, okay? But there's a, it, your attitude towards them can be totally different, Right? And again, this is our, the same thing we saw last time, that most people in our world today, that's the same mentality. Well, hey, whatever you believe is true to you and your path, they all get there, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that's Hinduism. Most people don't even realize it. 
But a Hindu, you could choose to be polytheistic, pantheistic, monotheistic, monistic, agnostic, atheist, even humanist, man-centered, and still be a Hindu. Right? Just come one, come all. Now, what do you think that would come in handy with in the last days? If you're trying to pull off a global religion saying that all religions should come together and unite, what kind of basis, what religion would help foot the bill? Hinduism. What do you think is being permeated across our world, even in America? Hinduism, laying the groundwork for that mindset that all religions, doesn't matter who, doesn't matter if you're an atheist, doesn't matter if you're a Hindu, whoever you are, come on, come on. That's Hinduism. Okay, now the deities in Hinduism, again, they're gods and goddesses, but there's also male and female. The males are what's called uh, the diva, uh, with the A, that's the masculine, or you got the uh, devi, okay, and that's the feminine, okay? The root of those words, at least with the diva, means heavenly, divine, anything of excellence, whatever you want to make a god, apparently. Uh, and, but the, the root of that means, this was interesting, the root of this means shining one. Hmm. Who's the shining one in the Bible? Lucifer, who's also, as we're going to see, maybe Lord willing, next week, okay, as we're going to get into again, uh, as we saw with yoga, with the kundalini spirit, the coiled serpent, supposed to be at the base of the spine, work your way up through the different chakras, through the third eye, and you get these supernatural powers, you commune with the deities, i.e. demons. Okay, who's the serpent god? Satan. But the serpent in most religions around the world is looked at as a good entity. Only the Bible says, "Uh uh-uh. Okay, but the shiny one is what that means. I thought that was uh, kind of interesting. Now, according to the, this one's always a whopper, Bhagavad Gita. How's that sound? You like it? Probably still wrong, but I will roll with it. But anyway, all beings, according to that book, again, another book that I have, all beings in the universe have both divine qualities and demonic qualities within each. Well, that's nice. What are you going to do to me today? You're going to be nice? You're going to be kind? You're going to, kind of a, thing is that uh hindu deities also live supposedly or rule over the cosmic body as well as the human body hmm who also wants to inhabit human bodies for some strange of all things to do demons very very interesting okay but that's what they believe now they even break down these demons or gods or goddesses as they would say uh, that they have various functions within the human body. Once they get in the human body, let me give you a, a couple breakdowns. Now, the supposed Hindu sun deity is supposed to be the giver of vision, right? So if you were starting to lose your vision, what would you do? You'd break out your murdies, you'd do your little uh, bhakti and get into it and worship, and hopefully they'll bring it back to you, right? That portion of your body, right? They got a deity for everything. Uh, the Vayu deity is apparently the deity of the nose, That's a booger of a concept, isn't it? I tell you. <laughs> hey, don't be giving me no snotty attitude. This is, I'm just reading off the paper. But anyway, I had to say that. Sorry. Uh, the uh, Prajapati is the supposed deity of the sexual organs. The Lokopalas is the deity of the ears. The uh, moon deity uh, of the, uh, the mind. The Mitra deity is the inward breath. The Varuna is the deity of the outward breath. The Indra is the deity of the arms. And I'm not making this up. The BR. H-A-S-P-A-T-I is the deity of speech. Now, that's, that's mean. <laughs> you try saying that word. I don't like that guy. Anyway, whatever, breast spotty, whatever. Anyway, Vishnu is supposed to be the god of the feet, and Maya is supposed to be the, uh, the god of the smile. So there's a, they, believe, they only want to have the deities inside you, but there's a deity for everything. And, of course, if you've got a problem, then go to that particular deity. Uh, but again, there are about 330 million, and no one, listen to this, direct quote, no one has a list of the 330 million gods and goddesses. But I guess they exist. 
Okay, uh, and, and, but they believe that each one of these are emanations of the Brahman, the ultimate reality, which again is not at all like the biblical part, impersonal force, can't unknowable, that's not at all, again, as we saw before, like the God of the Bible. Now, let's get back to this murti, this worship uh, aspect, and how important this is for them to interact and worship and literally commune uh, with their gods or goddesses, whichever ones you pick. Uh, Hinduism has an extensive iconographic tradition, particularly in Murti. Murti is an image of a god, okay, and represents an emotional and religious value. When a person worships in Murti, what's that? It's an image. So according to the Bible, what is that? It's called an idol, right? Now, isn't it interesting, the second commandment, the first one says, no other gods, okay? Second one, right after that, is what? No idols. In some Catholic Bibles, do you know which commandment's missing? Number two, why do you think? What's important to a Catholic so-called worship? Murti, idols, idol worship, figurines, Mary, this, all that. And then a priest comes and blesses. We're going to see that's Hinduism. Because a guru, a Hindu priest, has to come and bless this Murti. And then at that point, then it's infused with this divine power, supposedly, so you can now interact with it. Okay, and the way that they keep their commandments 10 is they get rid of the second one, okay, and they take the 10th one, you shall not cover your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's possessions, they bust that into two, so you end up with 10. Pretty sneaky, pretty sneaky, okay, but let's continue on. So, uh, when a person worships a murti, it's assumed to be a manifestation of the essence or spirit of the deity, the worshiper's spiritual ideas, okay, their ideas and needs are mediated through it. In fact, they will even worship the tree, that they cut down to build this idol, this murti. Listen to this. This is a Hindu prayer that you're supposed to say before you cut down a tree for a murti. Quote, O tree, you have been selected for the worship of a deity. Salutations to you. I worship you per rules. Kindly accept it. I don't know what the order is. But, <laughs> but too bad we don't see anybody else on the planet worshiping trees and stuff. Wonder where you get that kind of mindset to worship the trees, worship nature, put nature above mankind. Hey, you're no different than the tree, the flea, the bee, the you and me. Where's that mindset come from? Even in environmentalism. Hinduism, don't even realize it because they don't know Hinduism. It's made its inroads all over the place. A murti, uh, in its religious context, they're found, of course, in Hindu temples, but also in homes. Because again, it's individualized. You can bring it home with you. Uh, they, they, may be, they are treated as a beloved guest and serve as a participant uh, in their rituals, okay? And Murti is installed by priests in the Hindu temples, again, with the Catholic. If you really want your figurines, your Catholic figurines, to do the job for you, you need to get a priest to bless them. Now, I've shared before in other studies, I've had a guy that I witnessed to in Sacramento when I was in Bible college, Catholic family, and uh, he was just all elated. He was just sharing with me how spiritual his uh, mother's uh, uh, family, or his wife's family was, his mother-in-law, and, uh, and he was sure that she was in heaven because she not only went to mass, you know, whenever she could, and, uh, but uh, she had figurines. And he literally did said this, oh, she not only had figurines all over her house, she actually paid to have a Catholic priest bless him. I'm sitting there going, dude, she's probably lost, burning in hell. Are you kidding me? You put your hope in that? But again, this is, this is the same thing. It, it comes from Hinduism. Okay, but it's installed by priests in the Hindu temples, okay, through a ceremony which, quote, the divine vital energy of the cosmos is infused into that sculpture. So they believe that there's a merging there. And again, it could be an idol, could be a painting, could be a sculpture. Remember, 
This is their icon. This is their idol. This is how they commune with whatever deity they're working with. The practice uh, may be elaborate in large temples. It could be uh, at home, more of a private, simple song, mantra, uh, an offering uh, made to the deity. Uh, it could be formed uh, many times a day uh, in, or several times a day. It may just be occasional. Uh, but again, the, the point is when you're doing this, you're welcoming the, and honoring the, the deity into your home. You're welcoming them there, which is basically if it's an idol, and the scripture talks about behind every idol is a demon, then what are you in essence really inviting into your home? Demonic entities. Not a good thing to do. Turn to somebody and say that. <laughs> you got to be kidding me, man. But that's, that's the practice there. Uh, the devotee hosts and takes care of the deity. Now it's the, the murti, okay? As an honored guest, sings praise and hymns to it and stuff, and they'll even offer it food. Again, if you look over there in India and stuff, and they have these worships, and there's, there's people literally starving to death, crippled, crawling on the streets, right? And yet these temples have food that's going to waste, that's being offered and given to these deities and things, and they won't give them to other people because, oh, that's for the deity. Like, they're going to eat it. Number one, uh, there is no deity, okay? And basically what they do is the, the priests or whatever, they come and whatever with that. But still, the lot's rotten going to waste when people starving. And again, as we saw before, the reason why they also won't help out these people who are starving and or crippled and or sick Okay, even though they could and they have the ability to do so, is because, again, we're going to get into it tonight, is because of karma. If I help them out, I'm going to mess up their karma, and they're just going to have to come back and do it again. So it's a very cruel, cruel uh, form of belief system uh, as well. So they give them food, they sing praise to him to them, uh, 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 and offerings we saw before, uh, an expression of love and respect along with an affection, and you, know, you say hello when you come in, welcome, you know, and you, goodbye. It's just like the deity is right there with you this is very important to their practice uh the worship practice may also involve reflecting listen reflecting so now they're they're just staring at it whatever it is could be an idol could be a picture could be a sculpture uh they're reflecting on spiritual questions and the image serving listen as a support for meditation as we saw meditation is to one of the ways one of the ways to get into an altered state of consciousness so you can commune and connect with the goddess goddess demons right now, again, back to the danger, and Lord willing, we'll get into this again next week as we close, hopefully, famous last words, read, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I know, <laughs> whatever. Anyway, <laughs> but as we saw before, the issue of contemplative prayer, right? And they try to Christianize Hindu meditation and get into an altered state of consciousness. Same thing they're doing with yoga, right? But what do they do? Instead of saying a Hindu deity, and we're not going to have you know, a Buddha statue to stare at, remember we saw the examples? And again, we'll get into this Lord willing more again next week. Okay? But they say, oh no, we're just using a candle. No, we're just focusing on an image, Murdy, of Jesus. Even though we probably don't even really know what he looks like. And frankly, most of the artwork of Jesus probably isn't really what he looked like. Because most of the artwork of Jesus, he's more of a, like a Roman long-nosed guy. Probably what Jesus was. Jewish, hello. Okay, so he probably didn't have that nice straight nose. Probably a little bit bigger. Uh, plus the Bible says, you know, it wasn't really a whole lot to look like. You know, he's like this incredibly handsome, right? Probably was just an ordinary looking guy, uh, if you will, in his humanity. Hey, but now risen at the right hand of the throne. Man, hair is white as wool. <laughs> his glory right totally different but anyway but getting down to his image uh we probably don't uh even have a correct image right but again they, they what they do is they take this hindu meditation turn it into they christianize it but it's a murdy 
right? And again, what's the premise? I stare at this image. Oh, of course I wouldn't stare at the image of Buddha, but I'll stare at this image of Jesus until literally I go cross-eyed and get into that's, that's murdy. That's the worship practice of a Hindu. It's the same thing. That's all they've done is crept into the church. Now, if you think I'm joking, uh, Samantha, she, she's not here tonight. She, she uh, talked to me last week. She says she works for Hobby Lobby. She said there's the biggest one, the biggest trends. She does the ordering for them. She says one of the biggest trends going on, I was like, you got to be kidding me, is adult coloring books. She says we can't keep these things on the shelf. I says, what? I mean, I'd almost want to you know, learn how to peel turnips before I go back to coloring and say, okay, I guess it was cool. My kids still like it, but what? Sorry for all you, those you who are into this hobby, but I just blew it for you. But color, adult coloring books, I mean, they, she says, literally, I, we cannot keep these things on the shelf. You gotta be kidding me. And she says, in fact, they're not all kinds. She says, one of the biggest hot sellers out there is this coloring book called the Mandala Coloring Books. Ooh, what's that? Well, most people don't know because they don't know Hinduism. Now, I'm going to share with you just a little cover here, and it's just all these weird-looking 60s psychedelic cool colors, man, right? All that kind of stuff. Well, there's much more to it than that, okay? This is straight out of Hinduism, and this is just one of the hottest coloring books out there for adults. And listen to the description for only $15.99. And this is their description from Hobby Lobby. Quote, free your mind. Well, I thought it was just coloring because I'm bored to death. Free your mind with these enlightening mandala designs. With the mandala coloring book, you can use these circles to help you eliminate stress while exploring a unique art form. Featuring 100 customizable mandala drawings, this book encourages you to use your imagination to create vibrant patterns that reveal your hidden creative potential. All that from coloring. What? This is part of Hindu murti. Again, their image. That you do. And again, the image you look at and you stare at and you uh, and get to an ultra state of consciousness. Now, let's, just, let's talk about this. This isn't my theory. This is what a Hindu mandala is. It's a Sanskrit word, okay, and it means a spiritual and ritual symbol. Okay, it appears in the Rig Veda, one of their writings, okay, and in very spiritual traditions, the mandalas uh, may be employed for, listen, focusing attention of practice, uh, practitioners as a spiritual guidance tool for establishing a sacred space and an aid to meditation and transinduction. This is another way to get into an altered state of consciousness that will what? Open you to what? And it's through art. You stare at it long enough, and you get into an altered state of consciousness. And this is one of the hottest things right now going on uh, in the form of coloring books. Uh, and this is, again, this is not mine. This is from their own thing. This is their example. I didn't make this up, and I'm not just picking on people. Forms which also are evo uh, evocative of a Mandela, a similar type of Mandela, uh, is prevalent in the, this is their words, not mine, the Catholic rosary. You ever wonder why they're doing that? I mean, you're just ripping off these beads going through your Hail Marys. I mean, it's very repetitive, like a mantra. And if you're just going into this mindless thing and you get into a mindless state, what's going to happen? I saw a vision of Mary. I saw it. Yeah, you're going to have a vision, all right. You're going to have a spiritual experience that ain't from the Spirit of God. But it's been Catholicized into this thing. And you keep. Have you ever watched that? And I've shared clips of this before in our final countdown study, especially when we talked about Rick Warren and his push for let's all merge with the Catholics and all that stuff. But remember his favorite show with Mother Angelica, right? And he just praised Mother Angelica. And remember her show? It's just a lot of it was she would literally have a half hour, and all it was was filming nuns 
Tons of nuns repeating Hail Marys over and over again. It was the freakiest sound in the world. It's just, uh, uh, I don't even want to say it. Uh, 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 it was a, what's that going to do to you? Probably, it's a mindless activity. Get you into an altered state of consciousness. Okay. Now, the another area that this is creeping into, I told you this before, and this is a secular document, by the way. It's not just, oh, you're picking on people again. Uh, is secular psychology. Secular psychology is full of a lot of Hinduism uh, techniques as well, as well as the occult. Okay? According to art therapist and mental health counselor, Suzanne Fincher, we owe the reinduction of the Mandelas into modern Western thought by, here's the guy who's brought this in, Carl Jung. Anybody know him? He's one of the pillars outside with Freud, uh, who is the foundation of pillars of secular psychology today. Now, we talk about Freud. Freud was into seances. Freud, or excuse me, Jung was into seances. Freud was an atheist who was hooked on cocaine, a bunch of other issues going on with him. Maybe we'll get into that a couple Sundays from now, Lord willing. Uh, but uh, Jung was uh, into seances. Uh, he was a mystic. Uh, he admitted that he uh, uh, heard from a spirit that he called Philemon, which is where he got a lot of his uh, uh, entities from. He would have these mystical experiences where, in his words, uh, I, I was sitting on a rock, and he says, I didn't know if I was the rock or the rock was me. Uh, it, it was just it's crazy, crazy, crazy stuff. But he's also one who uh, used in his practice mandalas, the Hindu thing, to get into an altered state of consciousness, and that was supposed to help you in therapy. This is a secular document. Familiarity with the philosophical writings of India prompted Young to adopt the word mandala to describe the circle drawings that he and his patients had made. And according to psychologist David Fontana, uh, its symbolic nature can help one. Listen, I see most people, you go to a psychologist think, oh, they're going to help me with my problem. I'm having some difficulties, or I'm depressed, or I'm having some hard times, or I just need somebody to talk to, right? Well, listen to what they're doing to the people there. It, it's not just a, 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 just a conversation. There's a spiritual element behind a lot of this stuff, okay? Its symbolic nature can help one, quote, to access progressively deeper levels of the unconsciousness. What? ultimately assisting the mediator to experience a mystical sense of oneness with the ultimate unity from which the cosmos in all its manifold form arises. I just want some help. What are you doing taking me on a quasi-spiritual journey and working me into an altered state of consciousness? Lots more going on than meets the eye. Okay, but anyway, we get all that. Now, we're going to get into, hopefully tonight, the nine beliefs, oh boy, nine beliefs that make up uh, a Hindu. Now, as we saw before, hey, basically the bare bones thing, all you got to do is just basically believe that the uh, Hindu Vedas are divine and you're in, no matter what you believe. All right, and that's considered the bare bones. But there's kind of like nine core issues that typically also go along with that as well. All right, and let's take a look at that. Uh, number one, Hindus believe in a one all-pervasive supreme being who is both imminent and transcendent, both creator and unmanifest reality. That's that Brahma thing, but again, not at all like God. He's impersonal, unknowable. That's not at all like the God of the Bible. Uh, number two, Hindus believe in the divinity, again, of the four Vedas. They believe it's the world's oldest scripture. No, it's not true as we saw. They venerate the Agamas, which means that which has come down. Okay, uh, and is equally revealed. These, quote, primordial hymns, they believe are God's word, Brahma's words, and are the bedrock of sanatana, which means eternal, okay, dharma, uh, cosmic order, hence eternal religion. Okay, number three, Hindus believe that the universe undergoes endless cycles of creation, preservation, and disillusion. Okay, uh, and uh, number four, Hindus believe in what? Karma. Is that worked into our language or what? Yeah, we're going to talk about that real quick. Uh, karma and uh, the law of cause and effect, 
by which each individual, listen to this, each individual creates his own destiny. How? By his thoughts, words, and deeds. Well, if you're going to create your own destiny, you'd have to be God. The Word of Faith movement, the modern-day Christianized gurus today, as we saw before in a previous study, what do they believe? We're all little gods. And what do we have? That we have the power, we have the ability through our what? Our words, our thoughts, our deeds to what? Create your own destiny. That's why they would sit there and say, hey, don't you say you're sick because you're going to become sick. You have that power within your words. In fact, if you are sick, then you just need to speak to that sickness and tell it to go away. That's Hinduism right? As we saw before. But let's take a look at this karma thing because some people say, well, the Bible teaches karma because the Bible talks about reaping and sowing and that's the same thing as karma. No, it's not. So let's talk about that real quick. Karma obviously is the uh, theological concept, Hinduism, Buddhism, the idea that how you live your life will determine the quality, listen, of life you'll have after reincarnation. Major difference. We'll get into that in a second. If you are unselfish, kind, and holy during this lifetime, you'll be rewarded by being reincarnated into a new body, into a pleasant life. Okay. However, if you live a selfish and evil life, you'll be reincarnated into a less than pleasant lifestyle. Karma is based on the belief in reincarnation, but the Bible rejects that. Open your Bibles to Hebrews 9.27. You have to see this with your own eyes because we're going to see a bulk of the church today has bought into this. This is one easy verse, one easy verse to dispel this lie of reincarnation. Okay, Hebrews 9.27, and uh, let's take a look there. Dispels, do we keep coming back until we get it right? right? No, we don't. Here's very clear in the Bible. You don't have to sit there and wonder, is this some mysterious Greek? No, it's very plain as day. Hebrews 9.27 dispels reincarnation, the whole idea of karma coming back again and again. All right, let's take a look. Verse 27, when you get there, say moo. <laughs> Doesn't that sound beautiful? Did anybody else just about start to cry? Uh, apparently not. Let's move on. Uh, 27, right there. Just as man is destined, here's your destiny, to die how many times? Once, and you die once, and after that, what happens? You come back again? No, you face judgment. Right there, black and white, easy verse, Hebrews 9.27. Memorize it, be prepared to turn there, even in the church today, and say, excuse me, the Bible does not teach reincarnation, let alone this idea of, of karma. The Bible says we are destined to die once. Humans are born once, we die once. There is no endless cycle of life and death, no rebirth. Uh, second, it states that after death, we face what? Judge meaning there is no second chance, which means the pressure is on now. You get one chance at it, that's it. That's this life, no other. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, they'll say, well, what about reaping and sowing? It's the same thing as karma, right? No, it's not. Reaping and sowing, when you take a look at those passages, talks about certainly they both have a moral issues, right? If you do something immoral, whatever, yeah, it's talking about that. But they're radically different. When reaping and sowing, it talks about the receiving the outcome of your actions, listen, take place not in a future life, because you only get one. It's now in this life. Major difference when the Bible talks about reaping and sowing. For instance, the Bible says, hey, don't get drunk and go drive, or just don't get drunk drunkenness, okay? So don't do that. Why? Because you'll reap what you sow. You go out there and you smash into somebody, what's going to happen? Here comes the sowing. You're going to go to jail. You're going to pay fines. And unfortunately, if it gets even worse and somebody dies, you're going to be in prison. And stuff. When did that happen? Well, we're going to let you go because next time around, you're going to come back as a badger and they're going to run over you as roadkill and you're going to get it. <laughs> no, when is it? Now. That's biblical reaping and sowing in this life right now. Okay, major mega difference 
uh, than what is uh, presented in the issue of karma. Karma is a Sanskrit word which means to do or to act. So in reality, the basis of karma is you control your own salvation. It's works-based. You have to do it. You have to bust out of this karma, right? You have to live good enough. Do people think that if I live a good enough life that I can still make it to heaven? As long as I get 51% as opposed to 49%, I'm in. You ever hear from that? Prevalent big time today. That's kind of a karma mentality. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work my way out of this mess, okay? Uh, again, they both involve moral choices, uh, choices. But listen, karma, the belief in karma, doesn't affect one's relationship, in essence, with the Brahma, the supposed God force out there. Okay, Whether one's karma is good or bad makes no difference to the fact that they are unconditionally extended uh, from the oneness of Brahman. You're just going to have to do it again. right? Sin, on the other hand, reaping and sowing, the Christian concept, does affect our relationship with God in that we are separated from Him here and now. Right? Is, is a major mega difference. Also, karma does not allow for the biblical uh, uh, issue of forgiveness. Right? It doesn't allow room for people to forgive and be done with it. In fact, 1 Corinthians 13, this is a good one for married folks or anybody, period. Uh, it says, when you, biblical love, true love, what? Keeps no record of rights or wrongs. That when you deal with an issue in between, and ultimately it's not just for married people, 1 Corinthians 13 is for Christians, period. And that when we have an altercation, we come together and we ask for forgiveness, what, what happens? You don't get historical. Oh, yeah, well, I remember three months ago. No, that's not a sign you didn't really forgive. True biblical forgiveness is, what, what are you talking about? That's been wiped from my memory. I have no record of right or wrong. It's done with. Right? That's biblical forgiveness. And since God, different than this Brahma, who's, no, oh, doesn't matter, you're coming back again to try it again. Right? Uh, God, who is a personal God, the one and only true God, he can and does forgive us. We have that opportunity. Ultimately, the ultimate, full, free, complete forgiveness through who? Jesus Christ. So karma is not at all biblical. It's not at all like the biblical thing of reaping and sowing. And it frankly creates their basis of a works-based salvation, which they're never going to achieve. Okay? And it undermines everything that we believe in. Right? If you could do it yourself, why did Jesus go to the cross? Right? Well, why are we even here tonight? Well, just go home and start doing your thing and worship your murdy, and hopefully you'll get out of this mess some. Right? It's crazy, okay? But that's that uh, karma, right? Number five, Hindus believe in the soul reincarnates, is your next blank there, reincarnates, evolving through many births until all karmas have been resolved and moksha, or liberation, from the cycle of rebirth is attained. So you're in the state of what's called samsara again. Basically, it's in the cycle and you blew it, you got to do it again, you blew it, you got to do it again, you blew it, you got to do it again. And through all these different things, it could be intellectually trying to free yourself and achieving moksha. It could be through this worship and you can get there or it could be a moral thing and your karma and getting that all straightened out, but you can't ever do it. We'll get to that in a second. And then somehow you're set free from that. that salvation, moksha, that's, that's what they mean by there. Liberation from this cycle of rebirth is attained. Not a single soul, they believe, will be deprived of this destiny. You are stuck. In this endless cycle, this circle of reincarnation. You blew it, you come back again. You blew it, you come back again. Hopefully, maybe someday uh, you could do it. But is reincarnation the same thing as resurrection? No. And does the Bible teach reincarnation? No, it can't. We just read what? Hebrews 9.27. You guys are brilliant. You got it memorized already. Hebrews 9.27, of course, we die once, right? You get one chance at it, right? But they'll turn, they'll actually, people in, uh, will say, no, the Bible teaches that. Open your Bibles to John 3. Let's dispel one of them. John chapter 3. 
and uh, verses one through eight. Now we're talking about Nicodemus, right? Now we're talking about this issue of born again. Oh, oh, what's that? Could it be reincarnation? I don't know. Let's take a look, right? John chapter three, verse one says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who's come from God for no one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's what? Born again. Well, there it is. Born again. It's it's reincarnation. No, it's not. Keep reading the context. right? How can a man be born when he is old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot uh, enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. So he's thinking what? He's thinking physical, which would be a reincarnation. But Jesus corrects him and says, I'm not talking physical birth. He's talking spiritual birth, and he says that next. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases, you hear it sound, but you can't tell it where it comes or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. He's not talking about a physical rebirth, okay, like reincarnation would suppose. He's talking about a spiritual birth. And by the way, he didn't say you need to be born again and again and again and again and again and again until you get it right. And hopefully you get it right so then I won't have to go to the cross. He didn't say that. It's ridiculous. But people will do that and I guess the Bible teaches that and Christians suck it up. It's like, what do you, what? Okay, but let's continue on. Resurrection is not the same thing as reincarnation. Okay, first of all, reincarnation is a, uh, a rebirth into a new existence. That is totally different from the previous existence. When we receive our resurrected bodies, we all look like me. Yeah, what a day that's going to be. No, that's heresy. And how many guys glad that? That you're not going to be resurrected looking like me? You don't know how to answer that, do you? (laughs) I love you guys. I feel better. No, of course not, right? We're going to be what? We're going to be ourselves, right? Jim's going to be Jim. Debbie's going to be Debbie. Reed's going to be Reed. And the other Debbie's going to be the other Debbie, right? (laughs) It almost makes me up there. What are you guys doing? (laughs) Two sides of of a sandwich or something. I don't know what's going on. But anyway, so uh, no, right? We're all going to still be ourselves. Is that what reincarnation teaches? No, you're something different. You could be, like one guy said this. uh, This is a direct quote. For example, a human could get reincarnated as an animal, such as a cow. And I quote, this is profound. The cow is totally different than a human. (laughs) Let's close in prayer. That was a deep thought for tonight. Wow. So how can you say the Bible teaches it and it's not even the same thing? We are resurrection, praise God, in the body. It's just the new resurrected body doesn't have all these limitations we currently have. Okay, but it's still you. It's still us in a normal human body, not some other form. So that's totally, uh, totally different, okay? Uh, and then again, Hebrews 9, 27 says that that is not true and it cannot be true. You die once. Uh, reincarnation also negates the necessity of the cross, Okay, because again, reincarnation supposes you got plenty of second chances to do it right. You'll get it right, hopefully, in another lifetime, okay? Uh, According to the Bible, you get one time, and then uh, you face judgment. A person needs Christianity because reincarnation also does not remove sin, right? Reincarnation contradicts the Bible. But listen to this. The purpose, now let's put on your thinking caps here. The purpose of reincarnation is to help you to develop perfect karma, right? Because that's the goal. If somehow you could develop perfect karma, i.e. do nothing wrong, then guess what? Yay, I'm free. I get to go and merge with Brahma and become nothing. Which I guess is the second best thing to not being resurrected is me. 
No, it's <laughs> so become nothing, okay? But that's it. But somehow, if you could go and live a whole lifetime with perfect karma, you can be set free. That's the challenge they have. All right. But listen to this. Listen to this. All right. And the problem is that each person had a logically, if this belief were true, they had a first incarnation, right? Their first time, right? Maybe they're on incarnation 5,322. I don't know. But in theory, it's not true. But in theory, okay. They, they had the very first incarnation, right? Now, at the very first incarnation, logically, that means that person at that time had perfect karma since he had no previous life and had done nothing wrong, right? You follow? Listen, therefore, if you had perfect karma in the beginning, and in the beginning you didn't learn to do what you were supposed to do the first time around when you had everything perfect and had perfect karma, but you still blew it, then what makes you think after hundreds of incarnations of accumulating now even bad karma, that you're ever going to be able to get back to that original state. You couldn't do it the first time when it was perfect. It's a lie. It's impossible. It just keeps you going on and on. That's why, I like this quote, that's why you need Jesus, because reincarnation is not only false, but it is empty. It cannot work. But to also go to this, they'll do to two other paths, actually three other, not only uh, John chapter 3, the born-again issue, they'll go to Job chapter 121. And they'll say this, and he said, uh, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So they say, we'll see right there. He's going back to his mother's womb, right? And so it's, it's got to be reincarnation, the way he's talking about it. No, it's not. Think about that, right? First of all, if you're going to take it that literally, and if Job is going to go back into his mother's womb, at the time of Job's say in this statement, Job is a grown man. And ladies, how many guys would say it hurts enough when the baby was small, and then if you tried to go back in there, how many guys would say, you? it just wouldn't work? So if you're going to take it that literal, it makes no sense. It's ridiculous. Rather, what Job is talking about is returning. Who's the one, the Bible says, who formed us in our mother's womb? God. Who's the author of life? God. So all he's saying is, I'm going back to God. That's all he's saying. It has nothing to do with reincarnation. The next one they want to rip off is Ecclesiastes okay, 5. Uh, 15 very similar phrase but it didn't you read the context different thing as he had come naked from his mother's womb so he shall uh, return as he came he will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand so they said we'll see he's going back to the mother's womb well first of all again we are described what that means uh, again always keep in mind hebrews 27 man you guys are getting there maybe another three lifetimes <laughs> you get it <laughs> no kidding i'm just kidding Okay, uh, Hebrews 9.27, okay, but literally it cannot mean that, okay, the context is dealing with uh, not having a way to support your children due to bad investments, etc., blah, blah, and basically, he's basically saying he came into this world with nothing, guess what you're going to leave this world with? Nothing, that's it, so it has nothing to do with reincarnation. One more, and people will say this, New Agers will say this, I used to be in that camp, and what they'll say, oh yeah, well what about John the Baptist? The Bible says he was the reincarnation of Elijah. And Jesus does mention that, uh, for quote, for all the prophets in the law prophesied uh, until uh, John, and if you are uh, care to accept it, he himself is Elijah who was to come. Well, there he is. He's, he's, he re reincarnated. Keep reading the scripture. Scripture interprets scripture, right? And don't take anything out of context. First of all, John the Baptist clearly said he was not Elijah when he was confronted Okay, uh, uh, who are you, they confess. He says, I'm not the Christ. He says, who are you then? Are you Elijah? And again, because the Jewish people were looking for Elijah. Why? Because we're going to see that was dealing with the prophecy concerning the coming of the Messiah. 
Okay? Uh, he said, are you Elijah? And he said, quote, I am not. So John says he's not. But Jesus says he is. Now, number one, is that a contradiction in Scripture? No, keep reading. Number two, does it have anything to do with reincarnation? No, it has nothing to do with that. Let's take a look at the answer. Luke chapter 1, okay, first of all, this is a prophecy being fulfilled in uh, uh, Malachi 4, 5. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, right? So that's why the Jewish people were asking, are you Elijah? Is, is it the time now? Is the Messiah coming? Is the day of the Lord upon us? Right? And, and, and but here's what he, Jesus meant when he said he is Elijah, not meaning a reincarnation. Luke chapter 1, the angel of the Lord appeared to Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, and said, quote, and it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Jesus was not saying John the Baptist was John or, or was Elijah reincarnated. He was in the spirit and power of Elijah, fulfilling that function similar to Elijah, but not that. So don't fall for that one either. That's not what uh, it says. The concept of reincarnation is completely without foundation in the Bible. The Bible never, ever mentions having a second chance at life or coming back as different people or animals or anything of that nature. Jesus told the criminal on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. He didn't say, well, better luck next time, buddy. You have another chance at it next time around. You really blew it, right? Right? Uh, he didn't say that. Matthew 25, right? Specifically tells us that believers go to eternal life, everlasting life, while unbelievers go where? Everlasting punishment. You don't come out. Heaven is forever. Hell is forever. Okay? Uh, it's never been accepted. Uh, but it's a good thing that Christians aren't falling for this. Watch this. This was just six months ago, this article. Christians and reincarnation. Earlier this year, the NBC Evening News presented a story about a boy from the Midwest who claims he is the reincarnation of a man who died more than 50 years ago. The presentation included an interview with Dr. Tim Tucker, associate professor of psychiatry, oh, there's that again, and neural behavioral sciences at the University of Virginia. Two days later, I participated in an afternoon dialogue sponsored by a group of Fairfax County, Virginia, called the Interfaith, oh, what's that, Interfaith, buzzword for? One World Religion, Interfaith Communities for Dialogue. The theme of the session was what Buddhists, Hindus, and Sikhs believe. It included presentation by speakers from all three religions, also followed by breakout sections with groups involving, listen, Jewish, Christian, and Muslim participants as well. So again, what's the basis of all religions can come together? Hinduism, right? And again, in my particular group, I could not note, though, how the topic of reincarnation dominated this conversation of all religions coming together. Again, they look for common ground. Well, see, the East meets the West. We can all get along because don't you know that meditation is the same thing as prayer? No? Don't you know that the resurrection is the same thing as reincarnation? Right? No, it's, on and on it goes. That's what they do. They seduce people with this. All right? Now, let's continue on. Here's what's really disturbing. According to data released by the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life, not only do a quarter of Americans right now believe in reincarnation, one out of four people you meet in the world believes in reincarnation. Listen to this. But 24% of American Christians express belief in reincarnation. So that means one out of four people you're sitting in the pew with believe in reincarnation. In the church. How many guys would say that the hundred and some years of evangelism working in uh, America is paying off for the Hindus? And again, why is this important, even in the last days? Because you need this mindset to go along with a global world religion 
which the Bible says would happen in the last days. One-fourth of the church. Listen to this. This represents a significant deviation from the traditional Judean Christian narrative, which most Americans in the baby uh, boomer generation grew up. You were born, you died, you lived, and after a judgment, you went to heaven and hell forever. Yeah, that's a major departure uh, from that. Okay. Also, it said this, and this is a secular article. While Christianity's understanding differs in a number of significant ways from Hinduism and Buddhism, what is common... Uh, they believe, is uh, preceded by a purification of some kind. Listen to how they twist that, right? It's, well, our purification comes not from ourselves or our work or from karma or trying to work it off through reincarnation, endless cycles. It comes in this life only through Jesus Christ and the cross, right? But they try to say it's all together. But they did mention this. It's, quote, similar to the Catholic tradition called purgatory. And if you think about it, there's, again, another tie, not only with idolatry and things of that nature, Right? And you have to have the guru tell you what to do. Pope. Yeah, it's Pope or priest, whoever said that. Right? Uh, very similar as well. Uh, and who's going around the planet wanting to get all the religions together? I didn't have to use that fake voice. Thank you. I'll give you some gum later. Okay? Uh, but again, purgatory. What's the idea of purgatory? You go to this mythical limbo place and you purge. It's where you get purgatory. It's a place you go to purge off through your suffering and pain in order to hopefully maybe sometime, somehow, some way, uh, make it into heaven. That's a Catholic belief, right? And uh, that's very similar, but that's not what uh, Christianity teaches, okay? Uh, but here's the whole point as we get ready to close. What are we going to do about those who claim, no, oh, no, we know it's true, all right? Maybe you, maybe you got me straightened out in the Bible that the Bible does not teach reincarnation, but what about those who say they have memories of past lives, right? That's a big thing. Past lives, their reincarnation experiences. Well, first and perhaps the most important question should ask is whether or not these memories are genuine, Right? That's the big issue. Human memory is notoriously unreliable. Just ask, and I quote, any lawyer or detective. And let me give you some actual examples. Hang with me. We might be a little bit over, but I've got to squeak this one in. I almost had to skip this. I'm not making this up. These are reported in the Massachusetts Bar Association Lawyers Journal. Right? These are actual questions asked of witnesses by attorneys during trials and the actual responses given by the witnesses. Question number one. Now, doctor, isn't it true that when a person dies in his sleep, he doesn't know about it until the next morning? <laughs> wow. Next question number two. The youngest son, the 21-year-old, how old is he? Number three. Were you present when your picture was taken? Number four. Were you alone or by yourself? Number five. Was it you or your younger brother that was killed in the war? Well, if I'm here, right? Number six, I'm not kidding you, this is an actual question. Did he kill you? Number seven, how apart were the vehicles at the time of the collision? There. Number eight, uh, you were there until the time you left. Is that true? Number nine, how many times have you committed suicide? Think about that one. All right, number one. Three of you get that later on the way home. Uh, number uh, ten, uh, a question. She had three children, right? Answer, yes. How many were boys? None. Question, were there any girls? <laughs> Next one, you say the stairs went down to the basement. Answer, yes. And these stairs, did they also go up? <laughs> stairs usually do. Next one, question, can you describe the individual? Uh, answer, he was about medium height and he had a beard. Or he, had, uh, he was about medium height and had a beard. Uh, question, was this male or female? Question, doctor, how many autopsies have you performed on dead people? Answer, 
All my autopsies are performed on dead people. <laughs> Listen to this one. Question. All your, responses, uh, all your responses must be oral, okay? What school did you go to? Answer, oral. <laughs> You've got to be kidding me. Question, do you recall the time you examined the body? Answer, the autopsy uh, started around 8.30 p.m. And Mr. Dennington was dead at the time? No, he was sitting on the table wondering how I was doing an autopsy. Okay. Question, you were not shot in the fracas? No, I was shot midway between the fracas and the navel. <laughs> And last one, listen, this is a long question. Doctor, <clears throat> before you performed the autopsy, did you check for a pulse? No. Did you check for blood pressure? No. Did you check for breathing? No. So then, is it possible that the patient was alive when you began the autopsy? No. How can you be so sure, doctor? Because his brain was sitting on my desk in a jar. <laughs> Continues on. But could the patient have still been alive nonetheless? Answer, it is possible that he could have been alive practicing law somewhere. <laughs> wow that's pretty much but my point being is hang with me we're about ready to finish uh is memories can be what we all know that it's whatever deceptive you don't know maybe i don't know whatever and that's the whole point are these past life things are they even real right uh people frequently misremember things they believe they remember things that never actually happened uh, or not remember things that actually did happen Okay, in any case, the claiming those with past lives, no one can easily imagine them, uh, uh, one can easily imagine them re misremembering images from TV shows or movies, uh, mental fantasies from books they read years earlier, mistaking dreams for genuine memories. How can we know with any certainty that their past life memories are not one of these things? The fact of the matter is there's not no solid evidence scientifically acceptable that memories of past lives can be uh, claimed by some people to be genuine rather than mismembered uh, remembered events and or, and or just simply make believe. Ultimately, the question comes down whether we find truth in unreliable minds and memories or from the word of God. Now, as I close, I wanted to bring this out because a lot of people don't realize this is, again, is another practice in, in secular psychology. And there's an outfit called the false, uh, false memory syndrome foundation. And this was started in 1992. And I remember this when I was in seminary doing biblical counseling courses. Okay. And I'm not against counseling, but you need to be biblical, not secular uh, with that. But in 1992, and this was started uh, after uh, uh, Peter Freud was accused by his daughter, Jennifer uh, Freud, however you spell that, F-R-E-Y-D, of sexual abuse when he was a child. She did this later when she was an adult. All right? And so they started this group. He says, what are you talking about? That never even occurred. And so they started this entity to begin to look in the examination of people making these claims about sexual abuse. If you notice, that's on the rise. And we're going to get to that. That does happen, unfortunately. We'll get to that in a second. So we're not saying it's all a bunch of baloney. But it's such a trend now that there's a reaction to it. They're saying this is a bunch of baloney because of the techniques that people are getting these supposed memories from. Right? Uh, it's called false memory syndrome. And it's uh, uh, from recovered memory therapy. Okay? And the patients uh, are having these uh, mental uh, fabrications through psychotherapy, and what they're wanting to examine is the methods these people are using to get these supposed memories. And literally, people are tried and sent to jail based on these methodologies that they're saying is not even true and, and are not reliable, let alone in a court of law, right? In 1990, Jennifer Freyd, with the support of her grandmother and uncle, privately accused her father of sexually abusing her throughout her teenage years after, everything was fine, until after allegedly recovering memories that surfaced during treatment by a therapist, 
okay? And listen to how uh, these guys do it. Uh, that includes controversial therapy techniques, including hypnosis, relaxation exercises, guided imagery, stare at that, you know, Murdy mur for a while, see what happens to you, and what you see, drug-mediated interviews, hey, what do you see now, right? Uh, body memories, literal dream interpretation, I'm sure that's what the dream meant, you thought it was just about a toaster, but no, that was really your family, right? Literal dream interpretation and journaling, right? And what they said is the position of the false memory foundation is that there is no scientific evidence that the use of conscious altering techniques uh, can be used as an authoritative case on past memories, let alone past lives, right? And this is no small joke. Uh, one year after they started, 2,000 memory brain experts jumped on board, right? And that was 1993. How many more you got today? These are experts in the field, and they're saying, listen, this is happening so much by these baloney techniques, and people's lives are being destroyed. Now, what I do like about that, they say this. According to the FMS Foundation, the controversy is not about whether children are abused. Child abuse is a serious social problem, and it requires serious attention. This is not a joke. This is true, and it unfortunately does happen. Their issue is because of these techniques that the controversy is about the accuracy of the claims. And it's the same thing with this issue of past lives, right? Oh, I had this memory. I went this, and all of a sudden I had this memory, and I was, you know, uh, Cleopatra. What? Right? But you're going to listen to that uh, over the, the Bible. All right, let's finish up real quick. Uh, that's what we get from reincarnation. Number six, Hindus believe that the divine beings exist in unseen worlds, that temple worship, rituals, sacraments, personal devotions create a communion, right, with the, their gods and goddesses, the, the murti and the bhakti and the songs and the chanting, all that stuff. That's how they commune with the, their gods and goddesses, which are demonic demons, okay? Uh, number seven, Hindus believe that an enlightened master, guru, sat guru, uh, is essential to know the transcendent, absolute, personal discipline, good conduct, purification, pilgrimage, self-inquiry, meditation, uh, and surrender in God, right? So you got to have a guru in order to make connection. Does that sound like anybody else? Got to go through a priest, got to go through the Pope, things of that nature. Who do we go through? Jesus Christ, the only one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ, and through that, what? We have direct access. Hebrews uh, 4, 16 says, right? Hindus believe that all life is sacred to be uh, loved and revered and therefore practice, as we saw before, ahimsa, non-injury, thought, word, and deed. And that's, again, where they have the basis for vegetarianism. You can't hurt animals, etc. And that's right. I just had to share this because I just happened to come across this. Long-term vegetarian diet uh, raises risk of cancer and heart disease. Yeah, uh, the finding may help explain previous research which found vegetarian populations are nearly 40% more likely to suffer uh, cholesterol cancer than meat eaters. Wait a second, what do they say that usually meat does, it's supposed to do? And they're saying that vegetarians, without meat, you have a 40% higher chance of getting that. Okay, and quote, that finding has puzzled doctors. Researchers from Cornell University in the U.S. compared hundreds of genomes from, listen to this, I love this, from a primarily vegetarian population in Pune, India, to, you, know, you ready, Robert? You ready for this one? Uh, from a traditional meat-eating people in Kansas. <laughs> so they compared them and said, quote, there was a significant 
genetic difference. To make the problem worse, the mutation also hinders the production of beneficial omega-3 fatty acid, which is protective against heart disease. And previous studies have shown that vegetarianism and veganism can lead to problems with fertility and low sperm counts. Hey, if you're into population control and you don't want to control the population plant, what's something you need to push in the younger generation growing up that they really got to turn to? Get away from meat and, and what's going to happen? You're going to have troubles. They're saying, I'm not saying this, they are, with having kids by and large. Interesting. Another reason why maybe they're pushing that. Many vegetarians also struggle to get enough iron, vitamin D, vitamin B12, calcium, which are essential for health. And one study found that vegetarians have approximately 5% lower bone mineral density uh, than non-vegetarians. So I don't know about you, but I think that there's a reason, in, in all seriousness, I think there's a reason why God said after the flood, because of the geological differences on the planet and the physiological differences after the flood, that God said, man, it's okay for you to now eat meat and i think that there is with all due i know you guys are gonna think i'm biased in this statement but again what's god's word say i'm not making this up why would god say eat meat unless he knows that there's certain physiological things that you have to have in that okay and again isn't it just like the enemy to take something that god said you can do and the enemy twists it backwards exactly what it is. Hey, let's continue on the final one. Ninth belief. Hindus believe that no religion teaches the only way to salvation. Uh, no religion teaches the only way to salvation above all others, but that all genuine paths are facets of God's light, de deserving tolerance and understanding. What does that sound like today? And not only does 24% of the American church believe in reincarnation, but the stat out now is 25% believe what I just read in the church. All paths lead to heaven. In the church. So once again, as we close, I'd say that the efforts of the Hindu gurus who made their way here to the West has paid off big time. And most people in America are already believing and practicing, in many instances, Hindus, and they don't even realize it. And what's unfortunately is one-fourth of the church is caught up into it as well. Just in time for the last day's push for a global religion uh, in the last days. Let's pray. Well, hi, this is Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church and Get a Life Ministries. And I hope you enjoyed today's study. But in closing, before you go, let me ask you one final question. If you were to die today, are you sure that you go to heaven and not hell? You see, here's the problem. The Bible says that nobody automatically gets to go to heaven. And that's because God is holy and we are not. The Bible says that the wages of our sin or our unholiness or the wrong things that we have done have separated us from God. And the wages of our sin or unholiness uh, means that we deserve to die and receive God's judgment to go to hell and not heaven. In other words, we're disqualified for heaven. And that's because God being holy and us being not, the two cannot mix. So what are we going to do? Well, that's bad enough. The other problem is we don't even want to admit this dilemma, even though God already knows it all. And so out of love, God gave us something called the Ten Commandments to show us that we're really disqualified for heaven. We're not holy, we're not perfect like him. Uh, let's take a, a look at just a few of those uh, here today. Uh, the Bible says, the Ten Commandments says, you shall not bear false witness. That means lying. How many of you have ever told a lie before? Well, those of you who didn't raise your hand, you just did. Okay, let's be honest, folks. Let's not tell another lie. We've all lied. Well, believe it or not, that disqualifies you for heaven. That's how holy God is. He is the truth. He does not lie. And so that makes us a liar. Another of the Ten Commandments says you shall not steal. Okay? How many have ever taken anything without permission? 
Well, all of our hands should have went up at that one. Uh, we've already said we're a bunch of liars. Okay, well, we've all done that. And it doesn't have to be a bank. Uh, it could be a pencil in the third grade. Uh, that means that we're a thief. Okay, the Bible says that God is so holy, even his name is holy. And that's why one of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. Hey, folks, isn't it ironic how uh, now the blessed name of Jesus Christ, the Bible says there's no other name under heaven by which men might be saved, Jesus Christ, has now become a cuss word? Folks, the Bible says that's the sin of blasphemy. Okay, and folks, let's be honest. We've used God's name in vain uh, before. The Bible also says in the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus takes the standard even higher. He says, listen, it's not just physical adultery. He says, surely I tell you, that if you look at another person with lust in your eye, you've committed adultery in your heart. God looks at the heart. One more out of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not murder. And you might say, well, hey, I haven't done that one. Really? The Bible says that the sin of hatred is akin to the sin of murder. You, in other words, in your heart, wish they were dead. You pulled the trigger, if you will, in your own heart. And the Bible says God sees that and it's just as bad. He knows the mind, he knows the hearts, the thoughts, and the intents that we have. Folks, that's just five out of the Ten Commandments. How are you doing? Not very well. None of us can keep them. They're God's x-ray to show us that we're disqualified. And so when, not if, your time comes, because we're all marching towards the grave at different speeds, you're going to have to stand before God, and you're going to have to uh, say who you really are. He already knows. Hey, God, let me into heaven. Uh, I'm, I'm a liar. I'm a thief. I'm a blasphemer, adulterer, and a murderer. Folks, the Bible is clear. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's the problem. Here's the good news. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him, what he did on the cross, on our behalf, that we will not perish, we will not go to hell, but he will give us the gift of eternal life. Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of all of our sins. It's something that we don't earn. We, we, we can't earn. It's a gift, the Bible calls it. And a gift cannot be earned. He was taking the death penalty in our place. That's what the cross was of the day. And that if we would just ask Jesus Christ to forgive us of our sins and believe that in our heart that God raised him from the grave, showing that his death is satisfactory to God to forgive us of all of our sins, no matter what we've done, the Bible says, we shall be saved. Uh, the Apostle Paul says that if we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in our heart that God raised him from the grave, we will be saved. Let me give you a common analogy of what God's doing and what he did for us with Jesus dying on the cross on our behalf. Uh, in life, we know that people uh, can be sentenced for a crime uh, to where they're actually on death row. Uh, the courtroom scene has completely finished. The gavel has already sounded. Uh, they are going to jail and they're just awaiting their time before they go to the death penalty. Uh, as they're sitting there in the jail cell, uh, it, it's a proven fact they did what they did. Everybody knows it. They're just waiting for that time for their uh, number to come up, so to speak, and walk down that hall and be executed. Uh, there's nothing they could do to reverse their crime. No amount of good works in that jail cell can reverse what they've done. It's too late. It's over. But believe it or not, there's one way that people even today can get off a death row. And that's if the one in authority, the governor, if he were to, out of mercy and kindness, nothing that the person did, because they don't earn it and they don't deserve it, and they can't earn it, 
if he would grant them what's called a pardon. Out of the kindness of his heart, he has the authority to grant them a pardon and absolve them completely of their crimes uh, against the state. And did you know that there's actually been people that this has happened to, that the governor, out of mercy, has granted them a pardon as a gift, and they've gone down to the jail cell and handed that person, extended it through the bars, here, I'm granting you a pardon. If you would just receive it, you can go free right now. And did you know that there's actually been people who've said, no, I don't want your pardon. And so what happened is of their own doing, even though they had a way out, they still had to go to the death penalty. Folks, can I tell you something? That's what God did for us with Jesus dying on the cross. He sent his son to take the death penalty in our place. He, God, has the authority to grant us through Jesus a complete pardon. And every day that you're still alive, God is extending to you spiritually this pardon. But a pardon does you no good unless you reach out and receive it by faith. Won't you do that today? Won't you call upon the name of Jesus Christ? Ask him to forgive you of all of your sins, to trust in his work on the cross, to pardon us from all of our crimes, our sins against God. God loves you. He wants a relationship with you. But there's only one way to heaven. It's Jesus. There's only one way to get off a death row. It's through the cross of Jesus Christ. Won't you do that right now? Well, this has been Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church and, and Get a Life Ministries. And if there's anything that we can do for you, uh, please don't hesitate uh, to contact us. Uh, our number, our information will uh, come up here on the screen shortly. And uh, uh, if there's anything we could do for you, please don't hesitate to let us know. Uh, thank you for uh, joining us. And uh, remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.